New Thinking Allowed, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring potential telepathic communication with alien entities. My guest is Dr. Angela Thompson-Smith, an old friend I've known for decades, a remote viewer who was initially trained many years ago by both Paul Smith and Lynn Buchanan. She is a founding member and a director of the International Remote Viewing Association. She received her doctoral degree in psychology from Saybrook University in California, although she's originally from England. She's written several books, including Diary of an Abduction, A Scientist Probes the Enigma of Her Alien Contact, and we'll be doing a future interview on that book. Today, we'll focus on her book called Voices from the Cosmos. Her other books include Seer, 30 Years of Remote Viewing, Tactical Remote Viewing, and Remote Perceptions, a book that includes out-of-body experiences, remote viewings, and other natural abilities. This is an internet interview, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Angela. It's a pleasure to see you. Well, I'm happy to be here and happy to uh, be part of your show. We have known each other for a very long time. I remember you participated in a remote viewing study that I did well over 20 years ago. I did back in uh, when I was living in Las Vegas. And I think I did three or four or more sessions for you. Um, I didn't feel they were too successful, but uh, it was... Uh, it was a good practice. It, yes, it, it, the uh, <laughs> that particular study will be the topic, perhaps, of a, of, of another video. But uh, it does it does point out one thing, which is useful for our discussion today, and that is that lots of times remote viewing experiments produce results that are close to chance. Right. Right. Yeah. And uh, what we're going to be talking about today is a whole series of, it's hard to know whether I would call it telepathy or remote viewing, sort of a maybe a combination of both, studies that you did for a private client who wanted you to begin to explore extraterrestrial races. Right, and um, in particular, um, ET communication. And that was a, a fascinating project. And you worked on that for, I, I think, about a year. You uh, have collected data on, I counted because I have a spreadsheet which we will make available to our viewers. And in fact, uh, if, if you go to the upper right-hand corner of your screen, if you're viewing this right now, uh, there'll be a, yeah, a link you can, a hot link you can click on and download a spreadsheet uh, from Angela's research that includes the characteristics of some 32 different uh, alien uh, races, pr presumably. So let's let's talk about how the project began. Sure. Um, I had a nine-year business client, and from about 2003 to 2012. 
and I did a variety of work for him. And um, some of them were straight business, uh, remote viewing. Others were more his personal interests. And this was one of his personal interests. And he he would call me up very often and say, I've got a project on ABC. Uh, can you do this with remote viewing? So he surprised me one day and he said, uh, can you talk to the, the ETs with remote viewing or talk to the aliens with remote viewing? And um, he knew from a previous book that I did a little bit of earlier uh, forays into that field with um, some interesting results that's documented in uh, remote perceptions. And uh, so we talked about it and I put together a protocol based on uh, his questions that he wanted to ask plus indigenous interviews that would have been taken out perhaps into the Amazon and uh, asked of people who had just a limited contact with, uh, with uh, you know, with us. <laughs> so uh, I, he wanted five different races interviewed to begin with, starting with the, the tall gray. And um, so what I did was I typed all of those um, questions into my computer into a database and then I sat there at the computer fully awake I wasn't in a trance state I wanted to do this as objectively and as wide awake as possible and um, I know I knew that there would be a lot of criticisms and skepticism and I was skeptical myself because I didn't know what I was going to get so I sat down and um, I said okay question number one is there a tall gray out there that would like to talk to me and waited. And I started getting stuff back. And I asked the second question and the third question, and I got more information back. And I was on a roller coaster then. <laughs> Once you start, you just have to keep going. So went through to the end of the uh, interview. And I must say that some of the questions, some of the responses, I didn't quite understand. So I'd have to ask clarifying questions. And not all of the answers. Um, resonated with my own beliefs and thoughts, which I was trying to very much keep out of the picture. Um, for instance, they would say, um, the Grey would say that uh, abductions were beneficial to humans and um, also that humans were very limited. And uh, I had to sort of keep my own feelings in check and uh, sometimes ask, as I said, clarifying questions and um, sent all that package, did all that, sent it off to the client, who said, wow, um, go on, do the next one. <laughs> so we did that for a year. Only, um, I think it was 19 or 20 of the interviews made it into the book, Voices from the Cosmos. But as you say, there were many, many more. Some of them were only just mentioned in the interviews. Others we, we interviewed on a very limited basis. And there were more that we were going to interview, but we, we stopped at the end of the year. So with the very fact that you worked with this client for nine years and he's paying you for your time would, would suggest that he, he was pleased with the results he was getting. He was. He, um, I have a lot of correspondence from him um, basically saying it was very, very helpful and um, very beneficial for his uh, work, which was in finance. And uh, I asked him one time, well, if you were to put a percentage on the 
help that I give you, what would it be? And he said, well, just remember that I work in the billions of dollars. And so he said, uh, remote viewing adds about 2%. Now, that seems very small, but when you consider the amount of finance that he dealt with, that's pretty good. Well, yes, 2% of, uh, of 1 billion, we're running into many millions of, of dollars all, already. Uh, off the hot top of my head, I'd say that's about 20 million. Uh, right, th- right. <laughs> I there. never received that. <laughs> <laughs> now, where did you get the notion to begin with that there were was such a thing as tall grays? I've done reading in the past, um, and uh, always with an open mind. Um, I'd also had some uh, um, experiences myself over my my lifetime, not calling them tall grays or short greys, or etc., or reptilians. Um, but I did write that up as uh, another book. So yes, your book, A Diary of an Abduction, I understand you're planning to republish. Yes, I'm thinking in the summer, um, my next book, I'm currently working on a sequel to Seer, which is Scribe, and that's just gone up on Amazon Kindle, which I'm very happy about. Um as soon as I get the paper back up, then I'm going to start work on another book that I'm going to be calling Ultra Terrestrial. And um, that's the working title at the moment. And it's going to be based on uh, Diary of an Abduction, which is I have the copyright for. It's way out of date. And I'm going to sort of cannibalize it <laughs> and uh, also put in other work that's been done since. I've done quite a bit of um, ET off-planet work. And um, I'd like to put out a call because I'm very interested in Earth-based ETs who are here hiding in plain sight. In your book, Diary of an Abduction, you report that uh, a history of having had, one would have to call them intimate encounters with uh, alien beings of some sort or another, that probably helped to uh, prepare you for the uh, uh, Voices of the Cosmos project. I think so, because in writing um, Diary of an Abduction, it was very cathartic. And so I lost any fear of um, an encounter or contact. So I came into the work for Voices from the Cosmos uh, with um, very strong, you know, with, with no fear. Maybe one of the reasons that in, in this telepathic, ostensible telepathic conversation with a tall gray, he said abductions are positive, even though uh, you seem to consciously resist that notion. Well, me and many, many others, <laughs> mm-hmm. because it's different than what we would think of as a positive encounter. But Stephen Greer had uh, said one time in an interview, I believe he was a uh, uh, emergency room MD at one time, he said, if a child is brought in, so you may know this story, if a child is brought into the ET, that child is terrified because it doesn't know what to expect, particularly if it hasn't been in the hospital before. And the doctor sometimes has to has to do some procedures on the child. And um, the child does not look at that uh, encounter as positive. But for the child, it's very positive because it um, could save their life. 
That's the analogy. Yeah. That's, and, and you do have, uh, ostensible contactees such as my friend Whitley Strieber, the author of Communion, who maintains that uh, in spite of the fact that he felt he was literally raped, that at the end of the day, uh, he regards it as a positive experience. Right. Yes, I have read some of his work. And uh, I was interested to hear of his experiences that were like mine, but also very different in some aspects. Um, and mine were from childhood. Um, I can remember a, a memory from my childhood where I must have been quite small, sitting in my living room with uh, blocks. And my grandmother used to make me these felt blocks with alphabet blocks before I was ready for wooden ones. And um, I thought this tall, glowing, golden mother had come with her child to play with me. But they were not human. And um, they stood. They didn't sit down with me or crouch down. They just, and they talked to me, but I don't have any recollection of what we talked about, just about the visit. We will do a future interview uh, and talk about the, the, this very interesting history that you've had uh, that you began to explore in, in quite a bit of depth. But uh, going back to your uh, telepathic encounter with the large gray, the tall gray, that, w that was your very first one in the project that you did with your client. I was looking back through the database again just to refresh my mind. And uh, the fact that they don't consider us as, as advanced as them, they don't consider us, um, they consider us sentient human, but uh, definitely we haven't reached our potential yet. I, I think many humans would agree as well that we have a long way to go. <laughs> In, in terms of re reaching our own potential, I certainly don't think that as as a species, the human race is anywhere near its its potential. I mean, for one thing, we're making a mess of the planet. Right, I agree. I agree. And um, go on that uh, line. They one of the things I discovered was that they considered themselves cohabiting the Earth. Um, some are visitors, some are here resident, and they say they were here long before us and they'll be here a long time after us, which doesn't, you know, it kind of concerns me. <laughs> um, and uh, that they they harvest um, water, minerals, uh, all sorts of things from the earth. And they have been coming and going for many, many centuries. Do they come from some sort of off-planet location? Each of the races, I tried to explore that a little bit. Um, some just, their answer was, well, you wouldn't know where it was anyway, because we'll tell you our word, our name, and you wouldn't be able to know. <laughs> and others said, oh, yes, you know, we're, um, we're just from across the universe. And uh, so they, they really didn't use any of the names that we use. I tried to put in a few and said, are you from here? Are you from there? And uh, the answers were always very vague. And I think that they're not only extraterrestrial, but they're interdimensional. 
I noticed in some instances on the spreadsheet that we're making available to our viewers, uh, you actually had specific locations on a NASA map uh, describing their uh, place of origin. Right. That was a little bit of exploration uh, to try and uh, pin them down. And, um, and I think that was one of the client suggestions. <laughs> but it was difficult, you know, to ascertain exactly where they were from. Well, you mentioned earlier that uh, uh, more than one of these uh, alien races is living among us. Uh, in other words, they uh, manage to uh, present themselves to us in human form. When I did the interviews, I had very little knowledge of Earth-based uh, ETs. Uh, I, I don't like to use the word aliens because they, you know, they cohabit with us. You know, I accepted that there were people, ET groups that visited, came and went, and called them visitor, the visitors, and others that were here. And it wasn't until a few years ago when I was reading uh, Charles Hall's books, uh, Millennial um, Hospitality, particularly book two, that blew me away. I went, I've met these folks. They've been here a long time, back in the, the 60s when he was encountering them up at, uh, you know, it's now Crew Channel for Space. Uh, they were just being introduced to society uh, by the military. But um, I've met them in everyday life. And up till a few years ago, I honestly didn't know. I thought they were just very unusual people. <laughs> and... Um, but now what I would like to do with um, ultra-terrestrial is perhaps interview a few. That I'm sure a lot of people are going to come out of the woodwork and say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm an ultra-terrestrial. But I'm, very, I'm going to question them very, very closely and uh, ask for some proofs before I accept anybody's story. There are many people... Uh, who will tell you that they have past life memories of having lived on other planets. I've heard that too, yeah. And who's to say that the soul is not interdimensional, interplanetary? We don't know. We, we certainly don't know, and all I can report is that th this is the subjective impression that uh, people have. And, and anybody can just look on Facebook and you'll see all sorts of uh, Facebook discussion groups having to do with the Pleiadians and the Arcturians and the Lyrians and uh, uh, various uh, extraterrestrial locations and what their culture is about and uh, what they're doing. Now, I have no way of judging whether uh, is, this is all fantasy or or reality. And, and surely that same question must have, have dawned on you with regard to your own work. Oh, absolutely. When I started doing the work, I realized this was going to create a great deal of skepticism of, uh, you know, people coming in and saying, well, it's probably just your own imagination. You're probably picking up something, somebody telepathically, somebody in their basement in San Francisco, um, sending out messages and hoping somebody picks them up because <laughs> uh, I am sort of receptive. And, um, the client, too, was skeptical at certain points and said, well, could you talk to this 
group again and uh, ask some clarifying questions. Um, but I knew that there would be uh, skepticism. And eventually, if I can jump ahead a little bit, when uh, the project ended and my client had sold his business and relocated and uh, our process, our contract ended, um, he had said that I could publish the ET interviews. So they'd been sitting in my computer for about seven years. So I thought, well, let me write them up. Let me find somebody that would maybe look at them. And I'm not sure if you're aware of Donald Ware. Uh, he offered to post uh, one interview or one segment of it a week to his 600-person email list. And uh, so I went under a pseudonym. I think I used Rosetta Stone. <laughs> Just <laughs> as good as anything. Um, and uh, so the comments started coming back. Wow, the, this is amazing work. This has to be published. This is important stuff. So I think there were only one or two negative comments. So I was very, in, um, yeah, very encouraged by that. And um, one of the, my co-author came through that route. Uh, C.B. Scott Jones. I'd known Scott for many decades, and uh, but because I did this under a pseudonym, he didn't know who was putting out these ET interviews, and uh, so he's he wrote, uh, "Who is this guy that's putting these up on the site? I'd like to talk to him." So I responded saying, "Hi, Scott. It's me, Angela." <laughs> so he was very surprised. Well, let's talk about him a little bit. He's the co-author with you of the book, uh, Voices of the Cosmos, and he writes extensively about work he did in conjunction with Lawrence Rockefeller, uh, who had a great interest in uh, extraterrestrials and uh, their contact, potential contact with the U.S. government. He sponsored conferences. He sponsored many private meetings with scientists and government officials, and uh, Scott Jones was involved closely in, in all of that. He was. Um, Scott had a distinguished history. He was um, an Air Force pilot. He was a diplomat. He was a. Um, he worked for Senator Pell as an aide, and, and pa Pell used to send him off to all of the conferences, both the parapsychological, ET, alternative health, alternative energy. Um, so Scott has written uh, quite a few chapters in uh, Voices from the Cosmos, outlining a lot of work that he did that has never been published before. This was new stuff that he'd just been waiting for a venue. So in Voices from the Cosmos, you will get firsthand information of the early years, the early days, and behind the scenes information about the, um, the field. Now, you're referring to Senator Claiborne Pell, uh, as I recall, of Rhode Island, who uh, I've met. He was a, a board member of the Institute of Noetic Sciences back in, in the day when I had an affiliation there. Well, I didn't know that. Yeah, I also I knew him from uh, the Society for Scientific Exploration and also from there. You're talking about the Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Program, with which you were also affiliated. 
I worked there for five years. Yeah, um, I, I had been volunteering at another parapsychology lab and that was closing down. They recommended that I go over to Princeton and I went over as a volunteer for a few years. No, a few months, I'm sorry. And uh, then they said, would you like to work here? I said, absolutely, yes. <laughs> so um, they, they hired me on and I stayed there for five years, which was a fascinating five years. Well, the point uh, I'm bringing this up because the idea that you might be engaging in telepathic communication, uh, putting up a, a detailed, um, almost like a, a zoological typology of extraterrestrial races, it's such a controversial idea. I think it's important to establish your own uh, background, your credentials in in this field, uh, and the people with whom you worked. Th this is not just uh, uh, a fantasy project. This this was done with serious intent. Absolutely. And um I've had people come up to me and saying, if if you and Scott were not PhDs with the backgrounds that you have, I would have totally dismissed this work. So that's that's been a common thread going through the, you know, the criticisms. <laughs> One of the um, big criticisms that I would be aware of is is that normally in remote viewing, we want to get feedback from the target so that we can compare the uh, information produced by a percipient with the actual target. Are there any instances in which you were able to uh, have some sort of uh, validation or correlation with the information you were uh, receiving? Occasionally uh, from other literature, and uh, of course, it's very difficult to get correlation from uh, the ETs themselves, unless it was face to face. Um, yeah, um, the um, the Charles Hall books really provided me with uh, a great deal of feedback, and uh, particularly on the Nordics. And um, I'm still open to feedback. <laughs> uh, sometimes you have to wait for years. I back in the 19 1994. This is a little aside. I did a project um, on the rings of Saturn, and um, that was through some folks you knew that were an offshoot of uh, um, Ed Dames, SciTech. And uh, at the time, it seemed very, very incongruous what I was perceiving, but I wrote it up. I had to wait until the Cassini probe went to the rings of Saturn before I got my feedback. So that was uh, 11 years and then another a uh, few years on that. So it was a total of 20 years before I got total feedback on that project. So there's feedback out there sometime, somewhere. I presume what you're saying is that your description of, of Saturn turned out to be accurate. The rings of Saturn, yeah. Uh, a lot of very interesting features of the rings and the formation of the rings um, was validated by, the, um, by NASA looking at the Cassini footage. And I know, of course, Ingo Swan is famous for having done uh, remote viewing probes of uh, Jupiter, as I recall, before the uh, space probes were able to validate his information. Absolutely. Nobody knew about the rings of Jupiter at that time. And, um, and of course, in his book, Penetrations, he talks about how he was hired by an enigmatic uh, Mr. Axelrod 
to go and look at the moon. And uh, so that's a very interesting write-up. Mm-hmm. I think it's also worth mentioning, uh, if I recall correctly, Ingo Swan wrote uh, a foreword to uh, your book, uh, Remote Perceptions. He did. The very first book I wrote, I wrote to him and said, I've got this book and I would very much like you to write the foreword. And he said, well, you can, and he wrote back saying, well, you're going to have to come out to New York and have dinner with me first. So, (laughs) which I did. I had moved out of Princeton at that time. I was in in Las Vegas, the early days of Las Vegas. And uh, so I traveled over to uh, New York and had dinner with Ingo, gave him a copy of the manuscript, and he did in, indeed write the, uh, the foreword to uh, Remote Perceptions. To the extent that you're um, steeping yourself in the literature of uh, extraterrestrial encounters. And actually, to my knowledge, it's a vast literature at this point because there's so many channelers, there's so many people who claim to have direct face-to-face encounters uh, with aliens. One could probably uh, fill your entire bookshelf with accounts from various people of of their al- human-alien communications. So what I'm wondering is, to what extent did did that sort of um, uh, create a, a cloud over the work that you did, that you already were aware of this literature? I wasn't aware of all of it. Um, I was, I had been to a couple of MUFON conferences, and I had read some of the literature, but, and of course, SSE. Um, but I really wasn't steeped in the field. My field was more, because I came from a medical research background, and up until I started work at PEAR, I was still in that medical research field. So I was new to the field, so I really haven't had, and some of the work I deliberately haven't immersed myself in. You mentioned uh, earlier one of the alien species or ET species you contacted. You you referred to them as the Nordics. And I think we're talking about tall humanoid uh, individuals with uh, typically long blonde hair uh, or white hair, I think. Uh, and uh, to my recollection, I first read about Nordic uh, visitors back in the 1950s, I think, in, in the writings of George Adamski. Uh, so, and, and if one looks at the spreadsheet, which we're making available, uh, you've got, as I mentioned, 32 species. Each one has a name. Where did those names come from? Those names were pre-assigned um, because the client, first of all, um, said the first five that he wanted to interview. And then at the end of each interview, we asked the um, the group that we were interviewing, the representative of a group, um, who else can we talk to? And they recommended um, <laughs> another group to interview. So very much, there were groups I had no knowledge of. It was very interesting to go in and um, interview them as a totally new group. Some of these groups uh, seem very unfriendly to humans. Others seem very friendly and helpful. That was one of the things that convinced me that this I was getting real stuff because each of the groups had a totally different personality. Some were a group personality, some were individual. 
And one of the groups, as um, I wrote about the reptilians, the hooded reptilians did not want to talk to me. But I'm a very persistent, stubborn kind of person. And I persisted. And uh, I said, no, I, I really do need to talk to you. And um, they were begrudgingly giving me answers. And some of the answers were I put N-A, no, no, no answer or no response, N-R. And um, I, desi I decided I would ask them a few of my own questions, which was, if you meet a human on board a craft, because they travel with the greys, they said, um, how would you react to that? And they said, well, we would make a loud noise at them. And that would make them move, which I think would probably make me move. Um, and so my next question was, well, if they didn't move when you made a loud noise at them, and of course I was typing all this into the computer, um, what else would you do? And they, they came back and said we would push them, which also makes it's kind of a chilling kind of answer. So it was very interesting to, to get all this knowledge. Some of these... Um I'm going to call them visitors, but that's probably not the right word because you imply that they have actually been on this planet for a long time and they consider themselves as belonging to this planet as much as we do. Some of them made that claim. And um, in fact, some of them, the oranges, um, who, who are, they'd say they're cousins of the, uh, the greys, actually live underground. And there are stories of miners and cavers who've been down in the bowels of the earth and miners um, that um, have heard strange metallic noises, machinery, voices, sounds uh, coming from deep within the earth. And uh, so there are races, there, there are others that live underneath the earth. And um, so the oranges were a very interesting race. Now, we could consider them very much as co-inhabitors of the Earth, not necessarily visitors. I presume since they, uh, as you say, live under the Earth, they're not necessarily mingling with humans. No, no, they do um, mingle with the greys. They do. They are sometimes on the greys craft. Mostly they are um, underground. They, they mine, they trade in... Um, Earth, rare earths, rare, rare minerals. And, and so they specialize in uh, mining and metallurgy, I gather. Right, yeah. Now, when you hear the talk about the, the gnomes the, in, English, in you know, um, our history, the, they, and the, um, you know, that they mined metal and they were underground and they were short folks. And now, perhaps... They were an ET race. Who knows? Well, Jacques Vallée, in his writings, points out that there seems to be quite a correlation between the fairy legends of different cultures and uh, the reports of uh, people uh, in modern times regarding uh, communication with uh, alien uh, or ET entities or other dimensional entities. I'd read a little bit of that. And also, when you look at petroglyphs, um, having now living in the American Southwest, of course, I've been looking at different petroglyphs in different parts of the, the Southwest. And so many, you know, the ant people, 
uh, occur time and time again in many different regions. So it's quite, there are stories of the ET races talking about the, the star people that came to visit them. So there's a long history. Uh, and you point out, if I recall correctly, in, in especially uh, from reviewing the spreadsheet, uh, that uh, some of these uh, ET races have uh, really made a point of communicating with indigenous people. I believe so. Um, it's quite possible they also interacted with Western folks too, but there's very, very little um, literature. Um, there, there are indigenous stories passed down from father to son to daughter to children of interactions with the star people. And some have actually written these up. Um, my colleague, who's no longer here, um, Paula Underwood Spencer, had written up a wonderful story about the, the stories that she had got from her father, who was, I believe, Cherokee. I, I don't remember exactly. And um, about meeting up with the, the star people. There are books. I have uh, been in contact with a, a Native American who's actually been researching uh, this. Uh, I think there's quite a lot of lore in shamanistic traditions that uh, points in in this direction. And it, it seems as if there's some overlap. You refer, for example, to some of these uh, beings that don't really have physical bodies at all, unless on occasion they wish to project a body uh, that somebody you know, like a human could interact with. Yeah, they range from, and this is what surprised me, I was expecting to interact with fairly substantial <laughs> um, bodies um, of folks, although I didn't actually see them in my interviews. Um, but they range from, some of them are just pure energy that can materialize as a body, to just purely uh, physical um, that cannot, cannot shift out of the physical. So there was a whole range and so if we look at um, the literature of, for example, people who sh in shamanistic traditions, they communicate with a range of beings. They're sometimes referred to as devas or deities or daemons or demons or elementals. I, I think elementals is included in your list. There are. Um, the only races that made it into Voices from the Cosmos were the ones that we could say had any um, extraterrestrial connection at all. But um, the clients, I had also done a, a lot more work for the client, looking at devas and um, jinns and I mean, a whole series of um, ultra-terrestrials that were basically uh, in the literature. Um, because the, clients were, the client was very interested in these, uh, these entities, so those didn't make it into the book, but maybe will one day. And I know Whitley Strieber in his writings makes a point of saying that in uh, some of his encounters with what he calls the visitors, there also appeared uh, individuals who were deceased. He may not have known they were deceased at the time, but he, he seems to think there's some sort of an overlap between the E.T. literature and the spiritualist literature. That's possible. Um, that hasn't been my own experience. The shamanic experiences and the ET experiences have been quite separate. But I have read too that, um, and it's possible because of the ET 
ability to travel interdimensionally that perhaps they can they can facilitate that kind of encounter in your catalog on the spreadsheet, which I gather was put together by another person who went through your reports and uh, created this taxonomy that is now on a spreadsheet that we're sharing with our viewers. You go into quite a bit of detail about the various uh, talents uh, of each of these races. The, so they have strengths and weaknesses, particularly in terms of, of their psychic abilities. Absolutely. Yeah, this was put together by Dee Garcia, and I met her at a conference, and she presented the, the disc to me as a gift. And she said, I've, I love your book. I've been through the book. I've been very careful. And she had. She'd been very thorough. And it must have taken her weeks to do this work. She said, this is my gift to you. Do what you want with it. So I was like, thank you. I was just so happy. And that's why I offer it for free. It was a gift to me, so it's a gift to other people. And now we're giving it away to any of our viewers. Uh, I'll just say one other time, if you click on the upper uh, right-hand corner of your screen, you could download that uh, spreadsheet file right now if, if you're uh, curious about it. So the uh, some of these beings... Uh, live many different races, it seems like, live amongst us, live as humans, that you, you might not be able to distinguish them. They might be working in an office building or a military complex with you, and you would know uh, that they were necessarily extraterrestrial. That's true, and I, I would imagine a lot of people have already encountered them and didn't even know, because many of them are very humanoid-looking and acting. And um, unless you knew who they were, because they're basically hiding in plain sight. And uh, I've tried to, you know, get some information from them about the kinds of things they do here on Earth. And a lot of them do um, volunteer work. They're, um, they work in government and, and local businesses. And I have encountered some of them. I think some of that will go into uh, ultra-terrestrial and uh, they are everywhere. And I, another time, perhaps I'll, I'll tell you more about the uh, the local hotel that seems to be a meeting place. <laughs> well, in in fact, I know I do recall a previous conversation you and I had uh, about that. And uh, I've also uh, we have a mutual friend, uh, Ron and Sue, who were with you on one occasion when uh, you experience in one of the Las Vegas hotels such an encounter, uh, enter it into a very unusual state of consciousness in the presence of this, uh, this apparent ET individual. And, and my friends, your our mutual friends, Ron and Sue, told me quite independently of any discussion with you about this years ago. And, and they uh, referred to that event many times. It had a very, very strong impression on them. It did on me too. It was um, a big impact. And we, we did try to replicate it, but it wasn't, didn't quite work. <laughs> I think that was a chance encounter that we, um, we explored briefly, and, um, and it, it did make a big impression on us. I have no personal experience, telepathic or otherwise, of ET communication, but I talk to many people who uh, are convinced 
of it. And I've also, of course, for, for all of our viewers probably know, I've written a book called The PK Man of, about an individual who claimed to have extraordinary communication of that type and, and produced on-demand UFO appearances. I read it. <laughs> I have. Yes. So even even though the kinds of things that you're describing, Angela, seem uh, so bizarre that there are certainly going to be viewers of this series who will who will say they just can't accept it. It's too far out. My uh, attitude is some of the things that you think are so strange that you can't possibly accept are some of the most important things to look at. Absolutely. And um, I think that we will become more aware over the, over the next decades of our visitors. Um, and I like to think back to when my, my great, great grandparents were alive. And they, um, you know, if you tried to explain to them a cell phone or TV or some of the what people are doing nowadays, the children are all glued to their phones, they would say, that's so weird, that's so bizarre, but it's come to be reality in our lifetime. Well, we have, of course, a group of scientists who claim that they're searching for extraterrestrial life, and maybe uh, there's some bacteria on one of the moons of Saturn that they'll in encounter. They discount all of uh, the UFO literature as being unworthy of their attention. Uh, they discount uh, all of the uh, 150-year history of research and uh, parapsychology and psychical research. They discount the reports from anthropologists regarding the uh, communications that shamans all over the world claim to experience. But if you don't discount all of that, then, then the possibility that we are part of a uh, large interstellar uh, community makes perfect sense. Absolutely. And I think that's changing slightly. Uh, when I worked in medical research, the department I was in, the professor um, was uh, a numerologist. His assistant was a tarot card reader. Um, and each of the professors in the department all had some sort of interesting hobby, but they would never, ever have discussed that with their scientific colleagues. We knew because of being in the department. And of course, I was a remote viewer. <laughs> um, but um, if you scratch a scientist, you will sometimes find some interesting abilities and interests. Well, I tend to think that each person is actually deep inside a mystic. <laughs> yes. They're in a little bit of denial about it, but I think the, by virtue of being conscious, consciousness itself uh, is mystical to me. And mysticism, you know, for me, Angela, uh, the bottom line of mysticism, and mystics all around the world will say this, is that we are one with everything. Uh, as as my friend the philosopher Bernardo Castrop says, there is one eye that sees the world through uh, every being. 
Yeah. So there is a sense in which, uh, if if we take that as axiomatic, which I tend to do, that that we all share the very same ground of being, then then uh, you know we're one with each other. We're one with the plants and the animals, and uh, and also one with uh, extraterrestrial and other dimensional beings. I believe so, and um, you know we're supposedly made of stardust, right? So we are of the stars already. And that's literally true, that the molecules and atoms in our body were produced by uh, supernova explosions on dif- distant star systems. Yeah. So that's a, a good start. <laughs> well, Dr. Angela Thompson-Smith, this has been a delightful conversation. I'm uh, very pleased that you're, you're willing to share these uh, extraordinary experiences and findings and, uh, in a very level-headed, sober manner. Uh, thank you so much for being with me. You're welcome, and thank you for having me here. And I look forward to future conversations with you. Excellent. Thank you. And for those of you watching, thank you for being with us.